Today's podcast is brought to you by Ordinary Vegans, organically grown CBD oil made from hemp. CBD oil is a popular natural remedy used for many common ailments. If you have any questions about CBD oil, email me at questions at ordinaryvegan.net. Hope it can help you. You're listening to the Ordinary Vegan Podcast, where we teach you everything you need to know about adopting a plant-based diet full or part-time. Our goal is to empower you to live a long and healthy life. You can find today's show at ordinaryvegan.net or on iTunes. If you have any questions, please send an email to questions at ordinaryvegan.net. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Ordinary Vegan Podcast, number 92, featuring a very special guest. He is the star of the documentary that has altered people in kitchens all over the world. He is a man who studies books and tireless advocacy for eating plants has transformed countless lives across the globe. As you can tell, I'm very excited because it was Dr. T. Colin Campbell on May 1st, 2011 that convinced me that animal protein was the cause of chronic disease. And it was Dr. Campbell who paved the path for my own personal transformation. For over 65 years, Dr. T. Colin Campbell has been a courageous truth seeker and truth teller in the scientific research and study of nutrition and chronic disease. If we haven't met, my name is Nancy Montori, and I am the founder of this podcast and the website OrdinaryVegan.net. I am here to serve you and hopefully provide you with all the information you need to choose a healthy lifestyle that will protect you from chronic disease and viruses and help you live a long, happy, healthy life. So when I was exchanging emails with Dr. Campbell about coming on this show, he was signing his emails with his first name, Colin. And I was like, oh, my God, should I call him Colin? And then I was like, Nancy, knock it off. You're getting carried away. Of course you can't call him Colin. I lost my mind there for a second. I was also going to make this interview with Dr. Campbell into two podcasts because this podcast is longer than most of my podcasts. But then I decided that this conversation shouldn't be broken up because everything Dr. Campbell says is so important. And he tackles a lot of subjects here, including his opinion about how to protect yourself from COVID-19. So here is the Dr. T. Colin Campbell interview in its entirety. Hi, Dr. Campbell, and thank you so much for being here today. We are so honored you are here. It's a pleasure to be here, yes. Thank you. I just wanted to ask you some general questions before we talk about everything you have done in your career. So we got a lot to talk about. Uh, First off, Dr. Campbell, you grew up on a dairy farm milking cows and eating meat. Then you became a biochemist who was eventually convinced that all animal products are likely to harm our health. 
Was it an epiphany moment, or did your studies take a while to convince even you? And when did you stop eating meat and dairy? Lots of questions. Um, you're correct. I, I grew up on a dairy farm and then went away to school at Cornell University, did my doctoral dissertation actually on a project that was designed to increase the uh, production and consumption of uh, protein, which meant high-quality animal-based protein. Uh, so I was very much into that. Uh, then I, my first academic position, I had an initial responsibility at that time coordinating a, a project in the Philippines, uh, a national project in the Philippines, feeding malnourished children. And uh, the thought was uh, for us and for others in the field at that time that, the, that malnourished children in the world, uh, which was quite a problem, uh, was primarily a problem of not having enough protein. So our object, essentially our, our objective, if you will, in the Philippines was to figure out a way for these children to get the, you know, good protein and enough of it. Uh, but then I saw something there that was at odds with that. Uh, I uh, was told one day on the golf course, of all things, with my couple of friends and medical colleagues who uh, told me they were operating on children four years of age and younger uh, for liver cancer. And that was another hat I was wearing, trying to understand what causes liver cancer. And uh, that was also a very young age, unbelievable, actually. I didn't quite believe that. But then I saw something in our own database that suggested that uh, the children coming from the families getting the most protein were more than likely the ones to get in the most liver cancer. Wow. So uh, bells went off, and then I saw an article from uh, India, uh, experimental animal studies, sort of suggesting something similar, that higher protein meant more liver cancer. So I was faced with two pieces of evidence, uh, neither one of which were terribly convincing. But nonetheless, it was important. I, I had, to, we had to get an answer to that. So I came back home to my laboratory in Virginia, Virginia Tech at the time, and got an NIH grant that was to last for the next 27 years. It kept getting renewed. And so I, I published a lot from that. And the object of it was to see if there's any truth to this idea that high protein meant more cancer, especially high animal protein. And so we did lots and lots of research. I had a lot of students and postdocs and other colleagues. And we did a lot of research and published it. And sure enough, increase in animal protein increases our cancer development, at least for the model we were using. And then I kind of got into more human-oriented studies and saw what I thought was the same thing. So to answer your question, that went over a period of about, oh gosh, now from the time I finished my graduate work until that time, it must have been 15 years. Uh -huh. Because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm driven by science, basically. Uh, I like science. It's a fantastic uh, thing to, to be involved in, I guess. And because uh, you really stick with the facts, you create facts, you, you do that sort of thing. And uh, so finally, in the late 1970s, I finished my degree in, in uh, 1950, or actually 61. And then by 1970, uh, late, late uh, 70s, no, actually before that, uh, late 60s, early 70s, 
I was getting an inclination that the high protein feeding might actually relate to more cancer. Finally, in the late 70s, I think it was, I was telling my wife about this, of course, and uh, she was interested. We had children at the time, and she was very much interested in making sure we were that she was feeding our children the right thing. So we started changing our diet. That was in, uh, I, I'd say about 19, yes, in, in the middle to late 70s. Oh, it's and been a long time. And changed that over time and finally became completely convinced, especially after I was also organized a huge base study in China that confirmed what I thought I was seeing. And uh, so by 1990, we were pretty much there. So that's uh, 30 years ago. Wow. Do you ever slip up and eat a piece of cheese or have an egg? <laughs> no, no, not really. I, I, I did for a while. I mean, it, you know, it took by the time we started until we were reasonably complete. Yeah, we cheated from time to time. I, especially me. <laughs> uh, and I think the last thing that uh, I really gave up more than anything was uh, dairy. I guess partly because I'd come from the dairy farm and I found that a little bit hard to to contemplate. Yes. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so having a bit of cheese now and again at that time was true. There was another event. I don't know whether you want me to keep on going well, on or not. Well, I'm, I'm definitely going to ask you some questions um, about that subject for sure. Um, okay. I, I, I was wondering if you would mind sharing what you eat in a typical day. Well, whatever my wife feeds me. <laughs> You're a lucky guy. You got a wife who feeds you. That's good. Yeah, she, I mean, she, she took this information and translated it into, you know, good food. And uh, she's really become excellent over the years and, and cooks very well. And so we just, uh, I mean, you know, we obviously got used to this kind of food. I mean, it got to the point where, you know, we craved a salad. I, I never thought I'd say that, but we did. Yeah, I know the feeling. And, uh, just the way it is. I mean, you get used to it, and and then you just go, "Wow, this is this tastes pretty good." So in the, in the morning, I will have almost every day uh, either some hot oatmeal with fruits on it, fruit on it, or perhaps a, some cold cereal. Uh, again, with fruit. Uh, we live in an area in upstate New York where we pick a lot of fruit. You this, you pick them kind of places. And uh, so she freezes a lot of fruit, too, in the wintertime. For the wintertime, in the summertime, we eat fresh fruit, obviously. But so that's uh, uh, breakfast. And then lunch is a salad. Pretty much that's it. I love salads. Me, too. And uh, then uh, in the evening, uh, a number of different dishes that she has, um, all plant-based, all whole food plant-based. And her daughter had uh, published a book, a cooking book. And uh, also her daughter-in-law, uh, Kim Campbell, um, she has a book out too. In fact, both of them have had additional, you know, updated versions of it, expanded, I guess you could say. And uh, our daughter-in-law, Kim Campbell, she she's done a nice job of uh, organizing some cooking classes. Uh, so, so there's there's a lot of variety of, of food here that we can talk about, obviously. Well, can I ask you, as a founding father of the plant-based movement, can you share what you think of faux burgers like Beyond Meat and the Impossible Burger? Well, my traditional answer is uh, 
in some ways is a step in the right direction because it cuts down on the consumption of uh, animals, which we don't need to do uh, for sure. So we have that benefit. But on the one hand, but on the other hand, as far as uh, health, human health is concerned, I'm really concerned. I don't believe that they're going to do much, to be honest about it. Uh, and that's what a lot of people are in interested in. Uh, and the reason I say that is because they're made from products that are extracted from the whole food, like taking a protein out, this or that. And then they add back stuff too, like added oil and added fat to you know, enhance the taste maybe. And, of course. And that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a bit of a stretch from what nature produces. So I'm, I'm not, not too, uh, too excited about those products. But as I say, uh, they've become quite popular. As we all know, and and uh, I th I think it's a it's a crutch, you know, for what we really should do. It's a crutch. Yes, um, I I agree. Well, well, for someone who's trying to eat plant based and say they eat it eighty percent of the time, is eighty percent good enough, or are they still opening themselves up to chronic disease? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, I have to uh, sort of give a little preface to that. Uh, all of us as individuals have a, have different degrees of risk of getting some particular disease, let's say. Uh, so we're, we're all individuals that way. And so and so all of us too, especially in middle to older ages, we're usually on a track to uh, you know getting close to maybe getting one of these so-called degenerative diseases like diabetes or heart disease or cancer and so forth. Uh, so we're vulnerable. Some of us more vulnerable than others. Uh, and then uh, in that case, uh, 100%, I, I really think that's it. Stay there. Uh, because who wants to fool around with taking any chances? Uh, on the other hand, uh, some people are so healthy, you know, all of their lives. Or, but they're in the minority, I think. I mean, some, I like to say, I mean, there's 5% of the people apparently can smoke all their lives and and not well, get lung not cancer. Consequences. Yeah. But who's going to advocate smoking? So I, uh, and answer your question, though, more specifically, I, I think 100% is the way to go. But at the same time, I, I don't, I, I don't like to uh, preach or, you know, that kind of thing, uh, pontificate on this subject where, you know, to make people feel that, if they don't go 100%, they're not really doing it the right way. I, I'd like to say, okay, here's the information. And uh, once they get to know the information, it's their choice in a way to go as far as, and I suggest going the whole way because going the whole way, uh, we, we allow our taste preferences to change and we become accommodated to it. And of course, then there's the additional argument for a lot of folks that it's the ethical argument you know, just simply not participating in the, in the killing of animals, of course. Yes. So um, everybody has sort of their, you know, their arguments and their beliefs. Uh, but I think from a scientific point of view, I can't say that every single person has 100% all the time. Uh, and and they'll, they'll be guaranteed no, no problems. Or conversely, if people only do 80 or 90%, that they, that they that's about all they need to do. I can't say that either. 
Uh, it's just that I know what the science says, and the science basically says, you know, get let's get close to 100%, uh, and, and stay there because we get used to it. Food tastes good. Sure it does. feel good, too, about, you know, what we're doing for our environment, for our society, for animals, for all the rest of it. In your opinion, how soon can someone reap the benefits of a plant-based diet? Oh, you know what? That's a really good question. Where This is not necessarily published in the scientific literature, which I'd like to rely on as much as possible. But we have evidence now, some of it's sort of unpublished, that changes occur within 24 hours. Wow. It's amazing. And it, well, I'll be specific. Um, if uh, people... Uh, you know, let's say with heart disease, my friend, Dr. Esselton, Dr. Ornish, and so Dr. Medulla, they, they have used people. And one of the things that I, I know that they do, and, and our oldest son, Nelson, he, he did a number of these trials. And our younger son, who co-authored the book with me, he's a physician himself. They all say this. They say that once you, um, somebody starts into this business, cholesterol will drop like a rock in almost, you know, 24, 38 hours. 36 hours. And uh, that suggests that things have changed fast, obviously. And for type 2 diabetics who are taking insulin, just to give another example, uh, if they switch to this whole food plant-based diet, the the changes kick in so fast that were they uh, not to be careful and they're still taking their drugs, they can go into hypoglycemic shock. In other words, the blood sugar really drops too like a rock. And so from those experiences and some others, I also in the laboratory, we did this here, gosh, 30 years ago. I could see in that case more than that, 40 years ago, 40, 50 years ago, I, I saw when you change the diet, in this case of experimental animals, what happens is the, they respond within, as I say, 12 hours. So it leads to this idea that I'm, I'm rather rather fond of, and that is that the body reacts quickly to good food. Uh, we don't have to wait around to get all the benefits. Of course, the, the other point is, though, it may take time, obviously, you know, to um, recover old scars and wounds and, you know, push back disease all the way. It may take, you know, weeks, possibly. So, but the, but the important thing to keep in mind, a more positive approach, I think, is to uh, expect to see benefits quickly. If, if you know, it doesn't if it doesn't happen, don't fret. <laughs> you know, it'll, it'll kind of stay with it. it. May take a little longer. So, uh, but the idea that it, it occurs so fast, that's pretty consistent you know, watching your cholesterol drop. And cholesterol is not the be-all and end-all of everything, not even hardly of anything, but it's a good indicator. It's a good health indicator. Yes. You see that kind of drop and you say, wow, something's happening here. My doctor was shocked that mine dropped so much in just three months. I mean, you know, he took me off uh, cholesterol medication after only three months. It was just a defining moment for me, for sure. Um, a question right. that people ask me all the time, and um, I want to get the answer from the expert. How much plant protein does the average person need, and how about seniors? Is it different for seniors? You, you said uh, plant protein? Plant protein does the average person need. Right. 
Uh, actually, I've, I've uh, over over my years uh, in being a nutrition, I don't get very excited about talking about specific amounts. I don't like to to do that because it gives a, some degree of certainty. I think, uh, and uh, rather, I, I'd like to say it this way: that plants, whatever we do, you know, if we if we have a mixture of plants, we get all the protein we need. Number one. Number two, we don't need to worry about consuming excess protein with plants. It doesn't happen. So it's not even, it's not even worth thinking about. Great. Uh, one, one thing is, is important to say, though, we do not need, uh, need animals in order to get the protein. That's very clear. Very clear. No, we don't. We can get all the protein we need, and we don't need that much uh, just from eating plants. And we just can... Put that question back on the shelf again. I didn't worry about it anymore. Okay, good. Now I have an answer. Um, you once used intermittent fasting to cure a problem you had. What is your opinion on intermittent fasting, and which type would you recommend? Well, that's, that's good, too. I, I didn't know too much about that until I did have a problem. And back in the late 80s, I started some what was it, 25 years before that when I was at MIT, and I also isolated a compound called dioxin, very poisonous. Uh, that was the Agent Orange story of Vietnam days. And uh, I was working in a laboratory uh, without adequate protection. I didn't know that stuff was so toxic when I was working with, so poisonous. But I, I kind of got, got exposed to a lot of that. And that caused me some problems. Eventually, it kept accruing and getting a little worse over 25 years. And finally, I got to a point where I couldn't hardly speak and move my mouth very well. Had to quit lecturing. Went to a lot of doctors. Couldn't figure it out. They always had names for things. And I was told that um, one doctor said that when one year's time, I would not be talking. I mean, this is a leading, one of the leading experts in the country, the head of neurology at Cornell Med School. And told by another physician, too, that um, I was likely to choke to death. He, so he showed oh. me how to use a penknife to put it into my throat. Oh. Um, and so those are the diagnoses I was getting. And I can tell you, that's not very exciting. No, no, no. It sounds very scary. So I uh, kept on at it. I had to give up lecturing for a little bit. And, and uh, it, it was kind of a difficult time, but... Uh, finally, I, I was invited to, uh, this was, uh, when was it, 1991, I think it was, 1990, late 1991, uh, when it was getting particularly bad. Uh, I was invited to, this is also right just after the, the New York Times had come out with a, a lead article on our work in China. Um, it was uh, the featured uh, article, and the, and the Times also was front page uh, USA Today and all these newspapers. So the uh, my my work in China was really getting to be known, and so I got an invitation to be the uh, keynote speaker at a meeting of uh, the so-called National Hygiene Society, and that, that's a good society, an old society. But I wasn't akin to, I wasn't acquainted with them that much, and they wanted me to come and speak because they saw the article, great lot of news. So I told them and stumbled, you know, holding my mouth and. So forth. I said, you know, I can't really speak very well. But they wanted to, well, come down. You'll, we've got a lot of people down here as an audience of 500 or so, and a lot of them are not necess 
they're they're sort of a little bit outside of the box when it comes to medicine. So I, uh, I was okay. I came down and kind of stumbled through it, and then um, ten of them got together from different parts of the world, uh, had a look at me uh, to see the problem, and decided. It, and I, I'm giving you this detail because I'm very appreciative of what they did. They basically uh, made arrangements for me to go to a fasting clinic uh, at their expense or someone's expense. I didn't very kind of them. So I went there with uh, some suspicion by this time. I'd already been to about 80 doctors <laughs> and I didn't know, this, you know, do water only fasting. So I did that uh, first time uh, 14 days. Water only for 14 days? Yeah, for water only. Yeah. Wow. Uh, there were some there were doing longer than that. Um, and so I, I kind of got introduced to the world of um, what only fashion. I, I heard reports from others says, wow, you know, some people are really recovering things here and made a, a, a friendship with the guy who was organizing at the time, Dr. Alan Goldhammer, a wonderful guy. He, he uh, was young at the time and just getting it started. It was in California. And uh, so I, I interact with Alan quite a bit and I, I was sort of saying to begin, I don't think it's going to do anything for me. Uh, but I did it once, and then I came home and thought I had gained something. My wife wasn't sure. She thought I gained something, but I wasn't. I was kind of discouraged, too, at the same time. So I went back a, a second time, maybe a year later, with her, just to have company. And um, I did it then, and wow, And about six months after that, I started. things started to come together for me. And she had had a pretty, pretty serious bout with asthma off and on. That went away for her forever. And uh, so I, I became a fan. I became a fan of what uh, uh, Goldhammer and his, his uh, medical staff do. Did it cure you? Yeah, essentially, yeah, not, I'm going to say 95%. I'm still left with a little bit of struggle at times, uh, you know, public speaking, but... It, it works out okay. Most people hardly know that I, I really ever had a problem. Uh, and I'm more comfortable now with speaking and worked its way out. Uh, I had to quit lecture to students on the campus, which was difficult. Do you and ever- so I can say, yeah, it, it eventually it came around after, uh, well, what was that, that total period, maybe a couple of years, two or three years, something like that. Went back a second time and everything worked out much better, as they say, and and then even a third time. So I, I became, I mean, I, I saw, met a lot of people there, um, got to know the people at this organization. It's called True North, in Santa Rosa. Yes, I've heard uh, of that. They, they're very good. I, I, they're quite an operation now. And uh, so I, I can give them high recommendations. Uh, and I, I think of the fasting idea, actually, uh, Goldhammer gave me some data they had. They were curious to know if I'm help them get it professionally published, uh, which we did. We took their data, we analyzed it, and sure enough, we got some really impressive data that was published in, in peer-reviewed journals. Uh, so he subsequently has done really well. Um, had lots of different people there, curing all kinds of things. And I, th- I think it, uh, in my mind, um, with that experience, uh, uh, if someone has a 
you know, pretty serious problem that let's say been diagnosed with cancer, things don't look too good. Uh, maybe uh, certainly other kinds of diseases. Cancer is a little bit of a stretch, but nonetheless, they've got problems. Uh, and they don't, they, they want to get something pretty quick. I, I really think the first step for a lot of people, Dr. Goldhammer, of course, he, he makes final decisions on this sort of thing, but I think doing a fast um, is, is a great way to go. And, and one of the things about a fast, too, is that uh, when you come off the fast, that's the way his program is designed, when one comes off the fast, they go off easily, uh, usually using something really light, like watermelon <laughs> or, or lettuce or something like that. And so then they take, you know, maybe two, depending on how long they did the fast, becomes on, and within two or three days, they're back on to eating whole food again. But by this time, they're eating whole plant-based food. That's, that's, the, that's the deal. Wow. That's so interesting. I, so I think the combination is good. And I, I actually have always been attentive to what the literature says about that kind of thing. Uh, it's an old, old practice, I'm sure you know. I mean, thousands of years old. And different religions, in fact, uh, you know, are kind of proud of having, you know, some of their originators talk about that, I think. Uh, so it's not a, in, in the modern day, it might seem a little strange, but it's been around a long time. And, and uh, it does have benefits, no question about it. And there's so many types. Um, in 2010, you starred in... Forks Open Knives, the documentary, which single-handedly changed my life. And I wanted to ask you, but looking back on it, do you have some insight into why this film had such an impact? And were you surprised? Uh, I was a bit surprised, yes, number one. But number two, uh, there was, that was a time when there wasn't much said about this diet thing, I, I think. I think they, they, it was a very timely, you know, introduction of something that was, uh, you know, in the movie form, people like to look at things that way. And uh, so, uh, actually, they had come to me first and wanted to know if I would entertain the idea of doing that. I'd been doing some, you know, documentaries for people. And so I I wasn't, just couldn't be sure. <laughs> you know, doing one more, but uh, it turned out they were really quite serious and doing a good job. And, uh, and then, of course, they learned about Dr. Esselton as well. So he and I were really still very good friends. Uh, we kind of played a significant role in that film. I, I, I think, uh, and, and now to ask whether or not, you know, how, how, well, is it, well, that's not quite the question you ask, but, you know, I, I get stop, I've been stopped a lot. Uh, in airports and stuff like that because that film has really gotten around. Uh, and so it's been very successful, no question about it. Um, and um, there, there was, a, I might take this opportunity, though, also to say there's a, there was a sequel to that in a way. I mean, Four Seven Nights is a great, great film, gotten around. But uh, one of the questions that I was being asked because I was you know, kind of featured in it, uh, you know, why haven't we heard this before? That's exactly so, how I felt when I saw it. I'm like, how come I don't know this? I'm like one of the healthiest people that I know. Exactly. Um, and so I was being asked that question. Of course, I rambled on and gave some of my explanations, I guess. But uh, th that in turn led, that question led to a second film that was uh, 
produced by uh, my oldest son, Nelson, uh, called Plant Pure Nation. Yes, I saw uh, it. In an Fantastic. To try to answer that question. And, uh, it, you know, it's a, it's a question very much relating to big systems, especially the political, economic arena. And uh, it's hard to, and that's one of my passions, actually, the whole question concerning the role of the uh, government and industry and all the rest, you know, and creating the environment we live in. So that, did you say you saw Plant Pure Nation? Yes, I saw it on uh, the uh, Holistic Holiday at Sea. Oh, it okay. debuted there. Okay. Sure, uh, that's been out there. I think it's on Amazon now. It's, it's available Netflix and Amazon. Uh, so that was what the origin of that was. It was the same producer for both, John Corey, who did uh, worked with Brian Brian Wendell with uh, with uh, Force of Nice, and then he came to work with Nelson too on Plant Pure Nation. Uh, so now there's been a number of, of films like that. Yes, come out. there have. A number of- that, but that's the uh, the grandfather of them all. Um, and now, can we talk a little bit, bit about your books? Uh, first, the China study because it is phenomenal, and it is still the most comprehensive study of nutrition ever done. And I think you've sold over three million copies. My question is: something you talk about in the book is the stages of cancer. Why do cancer cells grow more rapidly because of animal protein? Well, that was the central question that I was asking myself in the very beginning when we started our research way back at that time in January of 1969, to be specific, was my NIH grant. Uh, one of the things I was interested in doing at that time, first off, is I wanted to duplicate what I thought I was believing and duplicate possibly what the Indian workers had done. So that was we were busy doing that a bit. But then the, I became convinced this is real. And so the next question we ask any place in research, actually, we on something like this, except something so provocative as this, you know, the question I was asking is, you know, how does that work from a biochemical sense? And so we got busy, and my lab was very active in that. I had a number of doctoral students and postdoctoral students, and we looked for the so-called explanation mechanism. And what really turned out was that uh, from the very beginning, um, it, it, I mean, in one, one, studying one of these mechanisms is a very complex process, a lot of research, it usually involved a whole PhD thesis. And uh, so I had a number of doctoral students who did their research on this essentially, but it turned out that after, what was it, maybe 10, 12 years, I got to a point where I was looking for that um, that uh, mechanism that could account for this because the, the thought there is, whether it's spoken or not, when we see something like this, you like to know what the mechanism is, if you can identify it, then maybe you can make a drug. All right? Right. That's, that's sort of the general thinking and uh, I guess I was caught in that paradigm, too, to a great extent. Uh, but uh, after looking, when we finally got to a point where uh, we had something like 10 or 12 so-called mechanisms that could account for this effect in a biochemical sense, I, I can mention just a, just a couple. Um, High-protein feeding leads to uh, the carcinogen that causes the cancer. It leads the carcinogen to 
enter the cells faster. It was a biochemical process. It uh, also increases an enzyme that activates the carcinogen too, on and on like that, um, including a couple, couple of uh, things it does that compromises our normal way of protecting ourselves. So I finally got points. I say we had about 10 or 12 of these so-called mechanisms and I had to, and I was looking for yet another mechanism. I said, why am I doing this? This is crazy. Uh, and this, all this stuff was being published, by the way, in the Pimbing Journal, so it was, you know, legitimate, good research. And uh, I uh, finally realized, you know, there's no such thing as the mechanism. And that probably is one of the biggest, most, uh, most exciting uh, observations I think I made in my career, because what that said is, wait a minute, if I, you know, if there's no such thing as the mechanism, I'm really undercutting the whole... Uh, precepts for the drug industry. I mean, we, we rely on drugs primarily because we think, usually, that there's a specific mechanism that accounts for various and sundry illnesses and sicknesses and diseases. We, we think of it you know, as a mechanism, maybe two, maybe three, whatever. And then we try to find some chemical that will block it. That doesn't make a lot of sense, I have to tell you. So uh, when my when that thought occurred to me, I knew I was treading on some territory. wasn't very popular, and uh, to be more specific, I was looking for the reason why the animal protein itself was increasing cancer like it did. It was so dramatic. We had all these mechanisms, and now I've gotten to very excited about the idea that. This, in fact, is the way nutrition works, not just for protein, but for other nutrients as well. A whole host of so-called mechanisms measured, I don't know, any number you can pick, you know, thousands, millions of different mechanisms all working together, well, you know, to create a response. And so it, 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 it presents a whole uh, different perspective on what nutrition can do. Did you actually turn on and turn off cancer in your study with animal yes. protein? Yeah, we did. And that was another sort of dramatic moment in the sense we could come to that realization that we could turn it on and turn it off. Uh, of all things, by basically increasing the consumption of animal protein. Wow. I mean, here's, here's the, what I'd like to say. Here's the most, in many ways, the most revered of all nutrients actually controlling the most feared of all diseases. We're talking about, you know, throwing gasoline on, on coals, hot coals, uh, to sort of even think about the things that way. I mean, we could turn cancer on and off, yes. And, and cancer, it starts in general, and we both of us think this way, it starts with a mutation, a chemical, for example, called a carcinogen. And these things we get exposed to one way or another in the food and water and so forth. And uh, some of these chemicals have the capability of causing mutations, some of which may lead to a predisposition for cancer. And, and then that usually is, at that point in time, uh, everybody gets busy spending a few hundred million dollars trying to find a drug to block it. But uh, in reality, because they, they figure that's the only way we can handle this disease, Got to kill those cancer cells. Once they're they're a product of a mutation, then they're not going to go backwards. 
mutations don't go backwards very very well, they're seldom. So what we what we did to, answer, to go to your point, we could control the rate of the cancer development. Could we, we could reverse it, wow. and that's a whole new world. It's well, a whole new world. You you oh, got God. a lot of. You were criticized a lot about that and got a lot of pushback, and you put up with a lot. Why do people get so angry and hostile about food as medicine? It wasn't like you were selling snake oil to prevent disease. The expression, you are what you eat, is nearly you know two centuries old. So why all the hostility? That's the subject of my new book. Oh. Uh, again, I, uh, I, I ran into that you know, full bore. In uh, 1980 to 82, uh, I was on a National Academy of Sciences committee, a rather distinguished committee of 13 people at the time. It was kind of exciting. We were being uh, invited to write a report, a scientific report on the relationship between diet, nutrition, and cancer. The U.S. Senate had put up the funding for that. And uh, so we worked on it. And I was fairly, I, I became quite visible in that activity because I was also holding other positions in Washington in the policy arena. And uh, so I started saying things um, that even my committee colleagues, the other 12, didn't necessarily agree with <laughs> that much. But uh, I was getting work at that time that, that animal protein was a problem. So I started saying these things. And then I, then I learned that's not the thing to say. Um, that uh, protein is so revered, so precious, so wor- almost worshipped in many ways. Uh, and, yeah, I started getting pushback, and, and the pushback was really, really serious at times. Like, you know, trying to, a petition being put up, very official, to have me thrown out of my professional society. Wow. After I had just been uh, nominated by the executive committee to be the president, to be the new president. <laughs> and then they threw you out? <laughs> Pardon? And then they threw you out after that? Well, they, they, there was a hearing held and all like that. No, they did not. I mean, it, it was fraudulent as far as I was concerned. And I knew where it was coming from. Uh, it was the industry had their subtle ways, not so subtle. You know, subtle in the sense of the public doesn't tend to see this very much, but it's anything but subtle when they do their thing. It's pretty nasty. And uh, so they started doing things like that, quite a number of things trying to get me thrown out of my faculty position at Cornell. Uh, but I had tenure, so they couldn't quite do that either. And uh, I, it goes on and on. And that's been going on for 40 years, 50 years. Um, and um, so it's taught me a lot about, you know, our system. I think we have some information here I find very exciting. And and uh, I I really had come to believe in what we were learning. And, and not only that, but it actually, uh, others have started using it very sensitive ways and, and seeing results that were pretty spectacular. So it brings me back to my experiences with national policy development. I have taken a great deal of interest in asking that question, why, why doesn't the public get to hear this? And so um, in 19, uh, that was 1882, on continued on then in, from 82 until about 85, and I uh, then took a position at the University of Oxford in England to work with, to work with my colleagues there. Uh, we were doing the work in China, and I spent a year in Oxford, and it, it, you know, the, the attacks on, 
on me professionally was pretty serious, personally too. So I, I decided to go to the uh, libraries if I could to try to answer that question. I said, what in the world is making people so angry and so hostile about this thing? Uh, it's, all, oh, it's almost frightening. I mean, scientists cannot operate in that kind of environment, if you will. And so I got into the libraries, so two in London and two in Oxford. Spent the whole year really, really getting into the history of that, of this question. You know, where does this hostility come from? All this, this misbehavior. And uh, I, I think I found the answer. And that's in your upcoming book? Yes, in the, in the upcoming book. And I think it goes to some really fundamental questions concerning not only our history, but it goes to questions concerning the way in which medical institutions have evolved. And scientific institutions, the way they have evolved over the last 150 years. And uh, for me, it's already all quite clear now. <laughs> I uh, can't and, wait to read it. And then on top of it, the science itself, you know, realizing what nutrition can do, which is a, a very different perspective than generally known. Put those two together, first the science, the second the politics, and third and fourth and fifth a few other things. But... Uh, it's, I, I think it's a fantastic story. I, I, get, I'm, I mean, my wife and I really got into this, too, along the way. She was fantastic. and just changed her diet. We had five children, and they grew up, and well, at least the, they, they got into it, too, because uh, they were only growing up when I was learning this to some extent. But anyhow, we've, uh, we changed our diets, as you already know, as already said, and uh, we've been pretty strict ever since, so... I don't I should be knocking on wood, but it tends to work. I'm just going on 87, and I don't use drugs. And I still get around pretty good. That's fantastic. Just so and that my, everybody knows, the name of the book is called The Future of Nutrition. Is that correct? An insider's yes. look at the science, why we keep getting it wrong, and how to start getting it right, which is right. being released on December 20th. So who should read this book, Dr. Campbell? Uh, my scientific colleagues, first and foremost. But no, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm just being a little bit um, smug here. I, I think the first ones that need to read it are the policymakers. But I know, and having been quite involved in policymaking and deeply involved for quite some years, uh, I, I see that problem too. Namely that um, people who make policy, like, you know, let's say the dietary guidelines, for example, or the group that uh, determines how much nutrients we need. That's the Food Nutrition Board of the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, there's different institutions in our country that actually play important roles in determining what the public gets to know, if you will. Basically, most of that, even if scientists make a contribution to that and they are asked to participate, at the, at the, last, at the last stroke of the pen, the people who control that are politicians. And uh, the politicians are the ones who are elected. Uh, you know, they're, they're basically, in my view, I'm being very dark now, I guess you could say, but this way I feel, politicians are bought and sold. And uh, it depends on who, who bought their elections. And it leads me to one, one of my really pet peeves. It has to do with the 2010 Supreme Court decision on... Um, Citizens United, it's called. 
where uh, corporate money was given a free ride, free given an open door almost to participate more in, in political um, elections. And so now, I mean, we all know it. You can see it just played out every single day. Uh, those who have a better chance of winning are the ones who get the most money. And uh, money is required, all made uh, really entirely available by that decision. It was only a five to four decision, too. And so it's a touchy subject. Um, and I feel strongly, just as a citizen, that should be overturned because right. the harm is done to our country. It's unbelievable. Well, since and, we're talk- talking about that, can we talk well, about COVID-19? Because I, wa- I got a question for you. Why in the world are so many people suspicious of science? Is it a right brain versus left brain thing? Are there a lot of, not a lot of critical thinkers? Are there just certain kinds of minds that can't embrace scientific evidence more easily? That's an excellent question. Um, That's an excellent question. Uh, I I sort of see this, uh, I'll describe it, at least from the, my experiences with science as a reductionist scientific philosophy versus holist philosophy. If we take the reductionist approach, and that is the basis, that's the core of the entire health and medical care systems, that's where we take, make the assumption that individual entities in food, like nutrients, individual nutrients, act by one mechanism to produce or an effect for one disease, if you will. It's always those kind of details are very specific, uh, specific uh, pathways. Uh, That's reductionism. When we do that, then there's a zillion different ways we can think about that. There's no limit. And everybody can have their favorite story to talk about, maybe make a drug out of it. That's the system we now have. Uh, In contrast, if we start recognizing that this is not the way nature did it, nature has had a lot longer time I mean, nature is our mother, you know, long before we became came into the equation, uh, that nature has a way of taking complex, you know, exceptionally complex things and organizing them in a way to produce an exceptionally complex product. And, and it does it in such a way that we'll never, ever, even the best of computers in the world, will never fully sort that out. We can learn a lot about parts. And that sort of thing. And that's what we base our industry on, make money on it, because we can sell those ideas that are based on parts. But when you think of things in a whole holistic way, the, the story emerges then that we are talking about a role for food and other things we do, too. But a role for food that affects a whole variety of illnesses we may have in the same sort of way. Uh, it, obviously, each one has their own sort of mix of mechanisms and all that sort of stuff, obviously. But what, what's fascinating about this idea is that uh, it almost seems like, if we can speak in a teleological sense, she knew what she was doing. Nature did. Yes, and, she did. Uh, so I guess that's right side, left, left side brain kind of thinking. I, I don't know. I think it ties into some way. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of obviously very good people, very honorable people, very honest people who somehow don't quite get it, you could say that, uh, because they've not been exposed to this kind of thinking, I think. Yeah. Uh, and so we're, 
our, our, our dialogue, our public dialogue and, and narrative on these things, usually cultured over decades, if not centuries, uh, that, that dialogue, um, what we tend to say, and we assume it was right and so forth and so on, uh, that's been really crafted in a way to, uh, as far as science is concerned, to be very specific. And, and we do that in part because of the economic system we have. Uh, we like to have ideas that we can uh, sell, make some money on. Uh, and uh, that is, uh, that's supported by uh, a legal system we have to protect property, you know, protect ideas. Yes. Through, through trademark, patents, so forth. And uh, so as long as we can protect intellectual property for some period of time to give everybody with a new idea, to give them a chance to, you know, market it, everything's fine. And I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I really am a free market person. It may almost sound like I'm not. I, I am uh, because I really believe in, obviously, individuals having lots of freedom to do what they want as long as they're we're behaving honorably. Um, the tall order. But I, I really think that... Um, the society at large has been, uh, gosh, how to say it's the scientists don't we don't know what we don't know. It's one of my favorite expressions. We don't know. It's not mine um, that somebody said that many times before, but we don't know what we don't know. So you can sort of say, well, what what do you mean by that? Um, and, and that is that we obviously don't know everything. We just have a very each of us have a very limited view of the world based on a lot of our own personal experiences. And we, we adopt language that we think is just normal language and say things. Uh, and then never stop to think, maybe some of these words we're using, you know, are not quite right. And that's where science is supposed to come in. Always be in the, the enterprise that uh, is skeptical. I mean, science is supposed to be skeptical, supposed to ask questions. And I just find it that ask, asking questions you know, over and over, never expected to find the ultimate solution, uh, but always asking questions to try to refine our thinking. I just think that kind of thing. And always being uh, challenged. That's part of the game. A bottom line, um, there's just some people who are going to believe science and there's some people who aren't. Is that correct? Absolutely. I, I think science has, uh, unfortunately, uh, gotten a bad name or, or, or certainly a weakened name uh, than what it should have. I, I think science ideally is a, I, I think the other word I think for science, and I've thought this for years, if there's a synonym for science, at least from my way of thinking, it's called integrity. Those two words mean the same thing to me. And everybody can be a scientist, you know, in their daily lives. Uh, just having the uh, interest, I guess you could say, and the dedication to you know know the know the facts, uh, and when when we do that, then it does lead us to some really interesting places. Uh, we ended up challenging our own thinking, certainly challenging big systemic problems too. So science, unfortunately, science has become known. Again, this is my opinion, uh, but science has become known. Or it's become, it's become equated, let's say it that way. His science has become equated with uh, just merely uh, doing technical things, maybe creating technical products of one sort or another. 
Um, I don't consider that real science, that's technology. Because if we start in our, our, our enterprise uh, early on with something definite in mind, I want to make this, I want to make that, I want to prove this, I want to prove that, that's, that's fine and dandy. We, we, we're going to be doing that. We always have done it. We'll continue to do it. Uh, and that's fine. But it's not quite what I'm talking about. It's a, it's a kind of an enterprise where we end up making products, really, in many cases, outstanding products. You know, so they're good. But it's still, it's technology. Science, on the other hand, is something different. We, we simply make some observations. We see things around us. And we have questions. So we say, we start saying, why? Why this? Why that? And we hardly ever get to the bottom of it, but we sure do learn a lot, you know, in that journey. Sure. Try to get, get to the bottom of things. And we discover things, too, that, um, that are at odds with what we always thought. And uh, I certainly saw, certainly saw a lot of that. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it gets you in trouble. Sure. Can we stick on COVID-19, too? Because I, I, yes. I, you, you conducted a big study of the severity of viruses and the effect of diet on viruses. With all your experience, if you were heading up the COVID-19 task force, what would you do differently than what is currently being done? Well, part of my answer on that, I thought a lot about it, um, goes back to the beginning. I mean, I just learned, too, about this new virus at the beginning about a year ago or so, or at least early in 2020, when I first heard about it, um, you know, I heard it was, it could be bad. Um, it could be made a little worse than some of the others. And, uh, but I also, unfortunately, uh, I was thinking at that time, uh, and something, this is based on what I know from other situations, the pharmaceutical companies like us to think about the seriousness of problems like that. So they have an opportunity to, you know, make some money on it. You get people afraid and scared. Um, and uh, I thought there was a little bit of that element in there, but I, I wasn't entirely correct. Uh, what I did learn early on, like a lot of other people, we could develop tests uh, for uh, who's, who's been infected and who has not. We can develop that reasonably easily, even with new viruses. Science is pretty good at that. So I would have, for example, really put all you know all the efforts into getting good testing uh testing as much as possible to see who's infected who's not if this is going to be a serious problem then it's a good idea just for us as individuals as for the society as a whole to identify you know who's who's the ones the carrier who's the ones being affected the affected or infected at the moment who can pass it on those kind of things uh so testing is um is uppermost in my mind. That's the first thing I would have done, and I think it still should be uh, pursued. Uh, number one, and then when at that stage, if we're in a position of being able to know who's getting infected and who's not, then we can take action. Those individuals can take action. So in that particular case, uh, you know, stay home. Just don't go out in the public. Quarantine, I guess, the word you use. Yes. Um, and uh, just just get out of uh, out of the public's way for a time. Take a little time off until you can see whether or not you've gone through that period of uh, infectivity. And so that's testing and quarantine. I, I think are important. Um, and then also, uh, I, in the absence of further information, I guess the social distancing and masking is okay too. I don't like it. 
to be honest, personally, I'm too sure a lot of people do. But uh, that's also a reasonable thing to do, of course. And, you know, what? one of the things that unfortunately happened in this discussion during the past year, it's, it's been politicized. And you got one side, as I say, uh, claiming that it's all a hoax and don't worry about it and do what you want. And, you know, that, that's what the kind of silly is, stupid. Uh, and then at the same time, not being prepared if they deal with the problem. You've got the other side, though, uh, sometimes who are taking advantage of this uh, time and and uh, scaring the crap out of everybody. You know, really, uh, sure I mean, is. they're using total numbers of uh, cases. Talk about all the time. That's not the metric. That's that's a metric for, you know, hospitals. They need to know something about that because they need to know what kind of facilities are going to, are going to be required to take care of the problem. Fair enough. But in terms of analyzing, basically, you know, how did we get it? Who's getting it? Uh, how bad are, uh, is, is it being? And so forth like that. That's, there's an element there that's not been addressed. Uh, and the element I'm specifically thinking about is the role of uh, nutrition. And uh, so I, I'm not totally new to this game. Uh, we actually did uh, some work in our China study many years ago, as you mentioned. Over 30 years ago, we, we were doing this. Uh, we were looking at, um, for example, the effect of uh, a couple of viruses on causing certain diseases. One virus of which is probably the worst virus in the world in terms of numbers of deaths. And that's the one we worked with. It's called the hepatitis B virus. Uh, that virus, called B at the time, now is also C too. But in any case, that virus is deadly. Uh, it's said to cause something like 700 to 800,000 deaths a year, every year. And uh, it's just still out there, mostly in Asia and Africa and certain parts of the world, but it's elsewhere too. We, uh, in our study in China, uh, actually had access to, and back-to-back studies, more or less in the same population, but uh, of about, um, first case, 6,500 adults. Next, it was close to 9,000 when we repeated it. We had access to uh, measuring uh, or assessing the nutritional status of all these people in great detail. The New York Times called it the most comprehensive study ever done in the history of medicine. I, I think we still may, may uh, say that. Um, we collected an enormous amount of information. So it gave us an opportunity to have a more in-depth look at how things work, how things work to create very susceptible diseases. And the ones that we were, of course, primarily interested in at that time was heart disease, cancer, diabetes, you know, the so-called degenerative diseases that are typically found in Western countries. So we focused on that. That's where the China study got most of its reputation. But we also had, you know, access to this virus. In this particular case, it's a virus that causes liver cancer, primary cause of liver cancer. And that was, uh, interestingly, that was one of my other hats I was wearing at the time. I went to the Philippines in the 1960s because I thought at that time I was doing some research in that area and I thought it was a chemical that caused the problem and only to learn that it was nutritional in origin, too. So to come back to the China study, we collect a lot of nutritional information. Here's what we learned, if I can just say this correctly. I know this is such a sensitive topic. But uh, what we learned was that people, we didn't learn it. These are the data. These are real hard data. What we learned was that um, people who consumed the most plant material, they were the ones that formed 
antibodies to the virus. Okay? Yes. So when people got infected, if they formed antibodies, then they tended not to get the, the cancer. And it's true enough, that's what it is. People consume the most plants don't get the liver cancer. And also they have the most antibodies. The two go together. In contrast, the people consume an animal-based food. And it wasn't much in Asia. They just not much is like on average in the areas where we were, it's only like 10% of what we do in the West. But still, that protein, that, that kind of protein, animal food, was high enough to actually to actually be associated with the increase, increase, mind you, in the formation of so-called, not the formation, but increase in the prevalence of antigens of the virus. That means active virus. It also tended to repress the formation of antibodies. So here you have sort of, you know, a, a differentiation between animal and plant-based food. On the one hand, plant-based foods are basically, uh, when people get infected, uh, I'm not sure what these foods, whether or not it protects us against infection, but it could, I, I'm not saying that at all, but I'm talking about, you know, the consequences of the infection when we get it. So people who have a, a higher consumption of good plant-based food, if you will, they form antibodies much more readily. They're immune. And they have, there's no relationship with, with, with liver cancer. In contrast, the people consuming animal protein-based diets, animal food, meat, eggs, poultry, pork, whatever, uh, those kind of people, even a small, small level of consumption, it's amazing. I thought I would never see anything. But it turns out that those who consume in more animal-based foods, their serum cholesterol level, for one thing, starts to increase from very low levels and almost no heart disease. It starts to increase. And then you guys start seeing the emergence of heart disease and cancers, Western kind of diseases. That's what we tend to see. And so here, in this case, here's a viral disease. It's not the, one of the degenerative ones. We see the same thing. Those who consume animal-based foods tend to keep around the active virus without forming the antibodies. They have, and there's the people consuming more animal-based foods have an affinity for liver cancer. So the virus is acting out as bad, as bad behavior for people who are consuming animal-based foods. In contrast, they're consuming plant-based foods, as I said, uh, they're more inclined to become immunized against the virus. Uh, and I say this is hard data, and I'm... Uh, I'm saying something here a little bit. Uh, I mean, some of this has been published. It was published back in the 1990s when I was asking at that time or suggesting we better pay attention to what we eat when it comes to this uh, disease like liver cancer, for example. We had that information, but no one's paying attention. Now we have this new virus. And uh, all the evidence from my uh, understanding of the literature, and none of us really know this fully, but... Um, Viruses all have something in common. They, they, each virus has its own endpoints. Some of them are very serious, like AIDS, polio, just to name a few, colds and flu, which are not too bad. You know, that kind of thing. They, they range all over the map. Maybe related to cancer. All viruses, when they land on our body and start multiplying and using our genetic machinery to actually so they can replicate, but in any case, these viruses... Our, our immune system is called into play. That's just normal nutritional, that's normal, normal uh, nature operating. The immune system goes to work and tries to immunize the body against the hazards of the, of the viruses. That's, 
That's a generalization that applies. Different mechanisms, different pathways, different this, different that, but it's just one of the facts of nature. And one of the best effectors of creating that uh, really a healthy immune system is eating the right food. That's simple. Eating plants. Well, but it's, it's, just, it's very exciting. I, I just think it's something that we can do, and they're not talking about that. I was no just going to say that, you know, the underlying health conditions like obesity, hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, and even dementia that are p- putting people at a higher risk for COVID-19 and getting really ill. And it's such a shame that mainstream media never talks about nutrition or how nutrition could impact and even reverse many chronic diseases. But... I think people seem to be slowly finding out, and maybe that's the silver lining. Do you think COVID-19 could cause a health revolution because people are getting so afraid of being sick? Boy, I, I'd like to think that. In fact, I have thought it. You uh, have? This may be an opportunity when, uh, you know, somehow that's the way when, when things happen. We, we go to sleep on a lot of things until something drastic comes along and then we wake up. And I think in this particular case, uh, we've been asleep at the wheel regarding the role of nutrition in healthcare and attention and treatment and so forth. We, we haven't taken it seriously. We've almost totally ignored this question as far as viral diseases are concerned. Uh, and it turns out that we have some answers here, I think. Thank you. We've got a lot of data. Yeah. That this is the way nature works, and it uses it uses food in this really tremendous dramatic way so maybe maybe it is the opportunity what you're just doing right now you know uh making figuring out a way to get some of this publicized is very nice uh and i think that's part of the journey is figuring out ways to get the information out there i have actually heard that there are some doctors who are treating covid19 patients with a nutrition approach which is pretty phenomenal and um, I'm hoping to find out more about that. Do you have any insights into that? Yeah, I, I certainly have been uh, interested in that. I, yeah, and that's a really key thing. And what I say is that, and it goes back to a point I was making in the beginning, when one starts this diet and they go, you know, wholesale, whole thing, uh, things happen really rapidly. A lot of people aren't aware of that. That's a very important point. Uh, and so things can happen pretty quickly. And so I would say that anyone who's really vulnerable Maybe just got the disease, even just got learning, just got affected, or they're you know associated with some others who you know with whom uh, they might you know get the disease. They can switch the diets, and I think we could see some results. Whether uh, once the, the uh, symptoms uh, once they're present and they start acting up, I don't, I don't know. All bets are off, but then they're pretty serious, you know, at that point in time, obviously. But we also know, too, that people have been diagnosed with uh, heart disease fairly late in the stage. If they switch, they see benefits. And it's just uh, one of the remarkable things of nature that she knows how to somehow capture, you know, take advantage of those opportunities to uh, not only, you know, prevent future opportunities, but actually to treat existing problems. So it's never too late. That's always what I say. It's just never too late to you know, take back your health or turn your health around. Never. Absolutely. Okay. The last thing I want to ask you about is your upcoming series, because your son, filmmaker Nelson Campbell and founder of Plant Pure Nation is about to launch a 10 part seminar series 
followed by an additional release every uh, two days in a, in a week, and you are the star of it. Can you tell me what the series will cover, and will it be anything like the lectures you do for the plant-based co- course you offer online at Cornell? Because I took that course and it was one of the best things I've ever done. Will this lecture series be similar, and what subjects will you cover? Well, the two go together. It's a hand-in-glove kind of thing. I want to make that point. Uh, it's true. Uh, Nelson has developed this, uh, asked me to participate and put it together, what turned out to be nine lectures. I think it will be a tenth of some sort. But in any case, um, what I attempted to do there, um, that's a very limited number of lectures for a so-called course, but you know, you kind of have to you, ha- you have to get to a point uh, on some of these difficult times. I, so I, what I, the way I looked at it was to try to choose the main things I'd learned during my career and put it into a form of a story in a sense, you know, chronologically yeah. as much as possible. And uh, so what I say in the beginning, I say, hey, we got a problem here. We got a problem. And I discuss that, for example. And, and I talk about the kind of problems we really have. But the same thing I say right in the beginning. I said, while we have this problem facing us, we see it all the time, we also have something that's a very likely a potential solution. The whole food plant-based diet can do more than all the pills and procedures combined. It's that simple. So then, in, in, in quite frankly, then going on into the next lectures, I give various and study ways to consider that question. Well, how do you know, people can say, well, how, are you crazy? What are you saying here? You're saying something a little bit far-fetched. Well, that's what I try to get into these other lectures to, to defend the proposition that, gosh darn, this thing really does work. It really works, and it has implications for the entire medical and healthcare systems. And so that's what this, these lectures are about. Now, having said that, and obviously in the form of nine lectures, that's a summary. That's kind of a summary of what I did. But at the same time, uh, we're still improving and uh, on our, our or uh, online course now with Cornell University, uh, as you know. That's such a it. fabulous uh, we, course. Uh, we're adding a new course, a very exciting new course, having to do with environment, I should say. Yes, I heard about that. And because food is the big ticket item that's really affecting our environmental problems more than anything else. Uh, I was involved in that some years ago with the World Bank when that much that started. Um, and so it's, it's a major contributor to that if not the major contributor to the environmental problems. We could save a lot of the problems we have right now if we just ate the right food. And the right food in this case is the same food that cuts health care costs by 60, 70, 80%. You know, it's the same food that makes us feel good. You know, avoids these diseases. It's, it's, the answer is basically the same across the board. It's what and you so eat. That's what I'm, I'm trying to do or tried to do in this, that message in the lectures and, so the lectures are sort of, a, let, me, let me argue that they are, I hope, is nothing more than an introduction. I'm sort of offering sort of like some summary comments, yes. But, but basically it's an introduction to a really important topic that needs to be considered in more detail. And for that, I really would suggest that people would take seriously, taking a, taking a chance at taking a course you took. That's the Center for Nutrition Studies. Uh, program that we have. Um, and we've got some other things going to our daughters involved in this and environmental projects and stuff like that. I don't know. Our, our Another son is a physician and he's a, 
He's now treating breast cancer patients, believe it or not, with a whole food plant-based diet. Someone believe it. Wow. Can believe this has never been done before. The Campbell and, family uh, are curing the world. You know, it's, it's just attacking the problem in various society ways. I just, I just think this this thing about deciding what we put in our mouth, you know, enjoy. We want to enjoy it, and at the same time, you know, cure ourselves, make ourselves healthy, make our society and our planet, in fact, uh, healthy. It, it's pretty simple. I think it's really simple. The, the science is infinitely complex. That's true. But we can't be, allow ourselves to get lost in the weeds. No, we can't. Dr. We Campbell, can't. thank you so much for spending so much time with the ordinary vegan community. The world is a healthier place because of you, and you have literally saved so many people's lives. We so appreciate you in everything you do, and I look forward to hearing your upcoming seminar. Thank you, Dr. Campbell. Well, thank you for having me. I just really like uh, what you do in that case to get that out to the public. That's the idea. I promise I will. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks to Dr. Campbell for being here today and to all of you who listened. I so appreciate you sharing your valuable time with me. I will put links to all Dr. Campbell's books in this week's show notes, including his new book being released on December 20th, 2020, called The Future of Nutrition. It is a deep dive into the history of nutrition and human health, and it exposes the truth of corruption in the medical society and why reductionism in medicine does not work. I will also put links to his website, nutritionstudies.org, and his plant-based certification course from E. Cornell. Also, to his new lecture series, officially called now, Dr. Campbell's Nutrition Paradigm. You can find me, my organic vegan CBD oil from hemp, and my cookbook, the easy five-ingredient vegan cookbook, on my website at ordinaryvegan.net. Please follow me on Instagram at Ordinary Vegan and join our large, healthy community on Facebook, over 300,000 strong at facebook.com slash Ordinary Vegan. Please stay safe, stay well, and always have faith. Till next time. Thanks for joining our plant-based community today. Together, we can accomplish great things. Please subscribe so you don't miss any of Ordinary Vegan's recipes and plant-based tips. If you have any questions or feedback, email us at questions at ordinaryvegan.net. Until next time.